you would, if you would go to your Bibles to James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 5 through 8 this morning. If you are new with us or you haven't been here in a while, we've been in this study that we started for the summertime. Uh, during the summer here at the well, we love to dive into a book of the Bible, kind of go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, and this is our attempt at that. We've been studying the book of James, i.e. Jimmy. That's been the name of our series. And we've been hanging out in these verses, the, first, the beginning of chapter 1, for now three weeks. And I promise you we're going to get out of these verses and move on. We'll start handling larger chunks of, of this, uh, this particular letter in just a little while. But we have to hang here because James really kind of creates the foundation for this entire letter in the first chapter, really, in the first ten verses. And so we need to make sure that we cover this appropriately because he's going to reference back to it. He's going to come back around and, and highlight once again some of the things that he sets in, as a foundation in the first few verses of this letter. And so over the past few weeks, we've been dealing with all kinds of different subject matter. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read just the first part again uh, to take us up to the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And it says this, James is servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We held on to that and looked at that the first week. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We looked at that last week. Our verses for today, verses 5 through 8, says this. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Uh, just a heads up, we'll be dealing with wisdom next week, what wisdom does in our life, how to cultivate wisdom, and what that, what that looks like. We're not handling that today. This is what I want to focus on, verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Everybody shout in faith. faith. Come on, everybody shout in faith. faith. In faith with no doubting. That's a tough piece of scripture right there. Because how many of you would be like me the minute James says that, would be like, yo, stop, listen. I want to introduce you. My name is human. Right? And last time I checked, my humanity has a tendency to push me towards doubting. Anybody else in here understand what I'm talking about, right? We all doubt. And doubting is a very frustrating part of, of our faith at times. So James then, why does he say this? But let him ask in faith with no doubting. And then he goes to make a stronger indictment. He says, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Welcome to church where we are positive and encouraging this morning. All right? But here's the deal. we got to wrestle with tough scriptures like this. And James sets out right at the beginning of his letter. I mean, imagine getting this letter from somebody where he busts in and he says, Count it all joy when you face trials. Learn steadfast and just get it together. Oh, and by the way, have faith. Stop doubting or you're a double-minded person, unstable in all your ways. I love you. XOXL. <laughs> right? That's a tough letter to swallow. It's a tough few sentences to swallow. So we're going to wrestle with it this morning. So today as we carry on in our series, Jimmy, I want to speak to you from the subject suburban faith. Suburban faith as we deal with the issue of real faith and what it looks like. Will you pray with me just one more time this morning? Father, I thank you for this amazing church. Not the four walls, not the lights, not the carpet, not even the chairs, but the body of people that make up the church. All of us from different backgrounds and different places, dealing and struggling with all kinds of different things. Father, I thank you that within the context of the church, we find unity, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from. So God, I pray this morning that every single person sitting in this room would know that they are loved and accepted here. And God, that you have a plan and a purpose for their life. And so this morning, as we deal with faith, I pray that you would help us cultivate 
to an even greater degree, real faith, true faith, as you see it in our lives. I thank you for every single person. I pray that you bless us this morning. God, use me to communicate your words this morning. Not my words, but your words. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and everybody shouted. Amen. Um, I've had the pleasure of moving around a lot in my life. I, my, my family was a, a Navy family. I was born in Poway, California. Um, quickly after that, my, my dad and my mom took me to Hawaii where we did a six uh, year stint there. My dad was in the Navy. Uh, Justin, my brother, our worship pastor, he was actually born uh, in Hawaii, on Honolulu, in Honolulu, and he still contends to this day that he's technically Hawaiian. Um, so we're still working on that with him. Lots of therapy. So, um, but, uh, and uh, so we spent some time there in Hawaii. From Hawaii, we bounced back to California. And Northern California area, Monterey area, um, we lived in Santa Cruz for a little bit, just cool, uh, cool places. Um, and then in 1989, after the 1989 earthquake in California, some of you remember this, it happened during the World Series, it's the only thing I know about baseball, is that it was almost taken out by an earthquake and we all would have been better for it. And so, um, um, <laughs> um, we have all these baseball fans at our church. I think they come just to like make it fun. So, um, so right after 1989 earthquake, we left to the Seattle area, and that's where we hung out for most of our time. I met my wife there, and and uh, and grew up there, and everything like that. So I've had the the privilege of moving around a little bit, and then. In college, I lived in Sydney, Australia, downtown area. It was just a, a great time. But I'll never forget moving to uh, the Seattle area. We were about 45 minutes south of Seattle in this area called Maple Valley. It just sounds suburban, right? And uh, Maple Valley, Washington, it was a small little area that my mom built our first home. Uh, my mom and my stepdad built, built our first home. And, and I remember getting into the neighborhood. It was a, much like a lot of the neighborhoods around here where homes are being built. And like you see like two homes and, and they've got no yards or anything like that. It's just dirt and the house. And then so everybody's then putting in their yards and then another house goes up and a fence goes up and this goes up. And over time, the neighborhood starts to take shape, right? And uh, we, got, we had the pleasure of watching this neighborhood grow. It was actually a really cool neighborhood. I, I met a lot of friends there. Hung out with kids. Um, this was back in the day where we still allowed our kids to jump ramps with no helmets, right? That was my mom. And, uh, and we got to do that, and we played street hockey and basketball, and the neighbors all joined. I mean, it was like this little slice of, of Americana, in many ways, suburban life. And then, as time would go on, as I have kids, I look for a little piece of suburban life as, as well. And so we just bought a, a new home in this really cool little area that we love, and it's mature trees. And once again, I found myself in, in suburbia. And this is actually the point that James is trying to make. Many of us, maybe you haven't lived in su uh, suburban life or in a suburban area, but you can understand, generally speaking, we can wrap our minds around what I'm illustrating and what suburban life looks like. Because this is the deal about the suburbs. They are a place that for the most part are safe and quiet, quaint, easily managed, well-groomed, and kind of proper. But here's the deal. I want to suggest to us this morning that many of us have allowed the suburban mentality to creep its way into our life and more specifically our faith. That our faith has become well-groomed and easily managed, quaint, and proper. But that's not the type of life, that's not the type of faith that God has designed us to have. Rather, he's designed us to live a dangerous, relentless, and out-of-the-box type of life and 
faith. And the strength of this passage is found in understanding deeper what James is really trying to counter in the people that he's writing to, including you and I. Because he's really trying to deal with how we view faith. And as, as Christ followers, some of us in here following Jesus for a really long time, and others kind of kicking the tires on faith and trying to figure out what's going on and what faith means, we all, I think if we're honest, we've all struggled with faith. Right? We've all struggled as to whether I believe in God. And so we do our research and we try to come to this place of knowledge and we study books and we read notes and, and we think through things and we try to quantify the existence of God and, and we work through these things. And I, and I want to let you know this morning that in no way is this message going to contain anything that's going to try to quantify the existence of God. Because that's actually not the faith that James is driving at here. He's actually trying to say that faith, real faith, true faith, is not about wrestling through the existence of God, but more or less wrestling through the nature and character of God. It's not about who we believe in, it's what we believe about God. Because here's the reality in the with the existence of of God this morning. At a certain point, we're not going to be able to come to the quantifiable terms that we desire and need as human beings, right? I mean, it's a fair enough statement that at the end of the day, there is an element of faith where it's like, man, I, I, gotta, I have faith that there's, some, there's some definitely some things that I understand that, I mean, that points, to, points to God and, and points to the existence of a creator and, and everything like that. But at the end of the day, for a lot of us, it's not about really trying to figure out if God exists, we have an issue with who God is and what he's about. Fair enough statement this morning? See, for a lot of people, they don't question whether Jesus walked the face of the earth. They question who Jesus was and was he who he really said that he was. He was either crazy or he was the savior. And that's what James is really dealing with here. We've got to go beyond, our faith has to go beyond just who we believe in, but more or less what we believe about him. Author of the New American Commentary writes it like this. This doubting is not about the existence of God, but about what kind of God the believer serves. And throughout the letter, all of James' corrections and warnings are finally concerned with his addressee's misapprehensions of God. True faith is what it is because God is who he is. And so James is trying to address people who are dealing, they're in a faith crisis. But not because they were struggling and believing in God, they were struggling with what they believed about God. You ever been there before? Come on, can we just have like a little therapy session? You ever been in this place where you struggle with what you believe about God? Come on, in this generation, are we not struggling with what we believe about God, who he is, and how he operates in our lives and in the lives of of others, we're dealing with massive situations in our culture where culture and, and faith are colliding and we're trying to figure it out all and how it all works and how do we as Christ followers engage in a generation that has a lot of questions and at the end of the day has a lot of issues with God? And I hope we as a church can wrestle through this stuff. I hope we can wrestle through scripture. I hope we can wrestle through some of these issues so that we can be the church that God's called us to be to impact the city around us, loving people, pointing them to Jesus. All right? And that's what this is about. The author of the New American Tom Commentary would go on to write this. Since faith is always a matter of personal trust in God, to doubt God in any way is to call his character 
into question, not his existence. See, God exists whether we doubt or not. So when we doubt, what we're really doing is we are calling into question the character and the nature of God in our lives. Oswald Chambers said it like this, faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. You ever been there before? You ever not understood what God is doing and why he's doing it? James's greatest concern was dealing with the suburbanization of his reader's faith. So James then encourages us to ask for wisdom in faith, knowing that God's nature and character is both generous and he fulfills his promises. This wisdom is what is necessary for unwavering faith needed to navigate trials, temptations, and developing steadfast, which we talked about last week. And many of us struggle with faith because we simply see faith as the belief about someone or something, in this case, God. James is saying, listen, faith is not about who you believe in, it's what you believe about him. Otherwise, we just serve a holy Santa Claus. That we just check the box and we say, I believe in the Easter Bunny, I believe in Santa Claus, I believe in Jesus, and I believe whatever, whatever, whatever. But we forget that faith, and many of us don't realize that faith isn't just about what you believe in, but it's what you believe about that which you believe in. And this is really important because faith is about the fundamental belief in the nature and character of God, not just His existence. And this is really important because this type of faith is dangerous because it will change the way that you pray and don't pray. This goes beyond trying to define faith and now rather allowing faith, come on somebody, to define us. And so many times we're trying to come up with all kinds of definitions and descriptors and about what faith is, and unfortunately, it's the rigidness of definition that many times leaves faith dry, mundane, and tasteless. But when I read through the scriptures, when I scour these scriptures, last time I checked, faith is not mundane, dry, and tasteless. It's supposed to be this living, active, powerful, beautiful tapestry of understanding God's grace, and it's in my faith, not just believing in Him, but what I believe about Him, knowing that He's good, and He's loving, and He's just, and He's righteous, and He's grace-filled. It's in that type of faith that my life comes alive. That's the faith in Jesus that we should be looking for. It needs to, faith needs to redefine us. And in doing so, I think faith combats four attributes that we as humans all deal, deal with. The first thing that faith combats is this, is faith combats double-mindedness. Come on, you ever been there before? You ever felt double-minded before? Thinking two different things at one time and because of the conflict of those two thoughts, we are left inactive, passive, and stationary? It's double-mindedness. These people, just like you and I, were dealing with the propensity that we all have towards being double-minded. Someone once said this, maturity is the ability to hold two opposing thoughts in your mind while not allowing them to tear us apart. That's maturity. It's being able to hold the idea of faith and injustice, pain and joy, grace and sickness, all opposing thoughts, yet knowing that God's nature and character ultimately prevails in the tension of these two opposing thoughts. How can there be suffering in the world if God is good? 
two opposing thoughts. You ever thought that before? How can a good God allow bad things? Two opposing thoughts held in tension within my mind. And for a lot of people, it's those two opposing thoughts that, that have a tendency to drive us away from faith in God. But really what James is trying to offer us is a way to deal with it by saying, listen, faith is not just about in God, it's about what we believe in God. So you can look at the injustice of the world, but still hold grace and goodness of God because that's his nature and character. And you actually see it when you go to a foreign mission field or another country and you see people without nothing yet praising God like Erica was talking about this morning. Why? Because their belief goes way beyond just in Jesus. They believe everything about his nature and character. So in the most desolate of situations, they lift their hands and say, yet I praise God. That's faith. I've had many friends who have gone to all kinds of different places and they come back and everybody says the same thing. How can these people have such great faith and yet have nothing? And the answer is, is because their faith goes way deeper than just in something. Their faith is about that something in his name is Jesus. It's faith. So faith combats double-mindedness. Second thing that faith combats is it combats uncertainty. Come on, you ever been uncertain before? I know I have. Uncertainty will always find its way to undermine the certainty that we are supposed to find in Jesus. We got a new little girl She's going to arrive soon. My life is uncertain. Right? I was thinking about it this morning. Here we are. I'm sitting at breakfast, and, and uh, my daughter comes out. She got this new dress that, uh, that she paid out. She was ready to wear it today. And so she comes out, and, uh, and I see her outfit, everything put on because she's doing her thing now. She's, and so she came, and she sat at the table with me, and I saw what I needed to correct in the outfit. And there was a reason for it, I'll explain it in a minute, but she sat down and so I started the warming up process. So, baby, your hair looks so nice today. It's so good, like I love the curls, it's so beautiful. And oh, You're just such a beautiful girl and your dress, man, that dress is stunning. And then I went in for the jugular. I said, but baby, those tights, they were designed for winter. If you wear those to church, you will get hot. You will get so hot that you will start to sweat. Then you will sweat so bad that you will pass out and you will die in church. <laughs> That's what I told her. Because it was the only way I could make, come up with some argument to get these, these tights off of her. To which she got up, she said, ah! Mom said I could wear them! And she stormed off. And right there in that moment, uncertainty crept in and I said, oh Lord, please let this girl be a tomboy. This next one, please let him be a tomboy. <laughs> There's uncertainty in my house, and while that's an easy situation for many of us, myself included, we've had other moments in our life that uncertainty gets a lot greater. Uncertainty rears itself in, in, in greater degrees and ways. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9 says it like this, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Isaiah 9. Now, I've told this story many times, read this story out of the, out of the Bible. The disciples, why is faith combating uncertainty? Well, because of this story that we see with the disciples. One day, Jesus decides to take the disciples to the other side of this river or lake to do some ministry. So he says to his disciples, he says, hey, guys, get in the boat. It's time to go. We're going to go to the other side. 
So they get into the boat, they hop in, and they're doing their thing. And the Bible tells us that in the middle of their journey, a tempest or a storm arises in the middle of the lake, and it's rocking the boat around. The waves are capsizing the boat almost, and it's getting a little bit hairy for them. And so they decide in this moment, hey, we got to wake up Jesus because the dude's sleeping. Can I just, like, little pro quo here? If Jesus is sleeping, everything's good. Okay? That's deep theology right there. <laughs> so Jesus is sleeping on the boat. And the disciples go to Jesus and they shake him and they wake him and they said, don't you see that we're about to perish, we're about to die. And Jesus says something very interesting to them that we've got to, it connects with what James is saying. He says, why are you of so little faith? And this is what James, uh, James is driving at and Jesus was driving at. See, the disciples simply believed in Jesus, but they were doubting his nature and character, because his promise was we'll get to the other side. So he says to them, why so little faith? You're with me. And for many of us, it's not that we doubt that he is who he is. We doubt what he's about. So faith combats uncertainty. The disciples had the ability to be certain in the time that they found themselves in, but they doubted. The third thing that faith combats is instability. Double-mindedness produces instability. Instability, funny enough, becomes the foundation for a life void of security and strength. Faith feeds security, and this is really a foundation issue, what we plant ourselves in, what you and I build our lives upon. Here's the question, what and who are you building your life upon? Some of us need to wrestle with that question. What and who am I building my life upon? And I've learned in my life that when I build it upon a faulty and insufficient foundation, my life becomes a life of uncertainty. But when I build my life upon Jesus, he proves himself once again as the strong and secure foundation in my life. And that's why the Bible says that Jesus is my rock. He's my chief cornerstone. He is the firm and secure foundation that I need. So when I'm anchored in him, when I'm living life in him, when I'm putting my faith in him, all of a sudden my life becomes secure and stable. So faith combats instability. If you're dealing with instability this morning, faith. But not just that I believe in him, but my faith then has to go to what I believe about him. And the fourth thing that faith combats is inferiority. You ever walked into a room before and it felt small? Like, not, not because you're, like, literally small, but, <laughs> but you just walked into a room and you felt inferior? Here's, a, here's an even greater question. Don't, sh- don't raise your hand, but I've felt this way before. In a moment of worship, you feel inferior? Like, I shouldn't be worshiping God? Because, like, if God knew what happened last night, <laughs> he wouldn't want me here worshiping him? It's inferiority. Spiritual inferiority. And here's what faith does when it combats it. See, for many of us, We doubt God in such a way because we don't believe that God should give us anything. We don't deserve it. Fair enough? You ever thought that before? I don't deserve this. But here's the good thing about God. 
Our faith is about him, not about us. It's not about what we deserve. It's what he's deemed deserving. And because of the cross, come on, this is basic foundational theology here. Because of the cross, I have now been deemed deserving. Not because of what I've done, not because of how I've performed, but because of the goodness of God. So he now looks at us because of Jesus, the mediator, and he says, oh no, I see my kid and I want to give them everything that I possibly can. That's why James says, ask for wisdom and he will give it you don't doubt because he's good he's good see many of us we doubt that he's faithful we doubt that his nature is good and I know that we can deal with inferiority and believe that we don't deserve and you're actually right you don't deserve anything I don't deserve anything come on there's good news this morning write that down if you're taking notes I don't deserve anything but God But God, rich in mercy, the Bible tells us that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. That's good news. That's exciting news. That's why we worship the way we do. That's why we engage the way that we do. That's why we shout it from the rooftops and from the stage and in our city. Why? Because while I was yet still marred and messed up and muddy and gross and dysfunctional and flighty and scared and fearful and insecure and all kinds of inward looking and not really realizing that there was a plan and a purpose, yet in the middle of all that, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, so that I might have life and life to the fullest so I don't need to live inferior anymore I got to say I know who my dad is my dad's bigger than you my dad can beat your dad up but some of us need to take that mentality with the problems that we face come on somebody when Satan starts rearing his head in our lives my dad is bigger than you he's got some things that he wants to say to you I love the song that Hillsong just came out with I told the devil not today today some of us are fighting and we're inferior because we believe that we're not deserving you're right we don't but luckily this isn't about you it's about him so faith combats those four things I've got three other points that I have to work through in the next four minutes so this is gonna be awesome (laughs) this type of faith then redefines us and causes us to live a life outside the nicely manicured lawns of our suburban life and faith. I don't want suburban faith. I want wild, passionate faith. What song were we singing? What was the second song we were singing? Your love, yeah, your love is relentless. That's a nature and character song. Because many of us believe that God's character relents. But his love is relentless. And that's why I go, love is relentless. (laughs) That's how I worship. (laughs) That should be our churches. That should be our faith. It should be wild. It should be passionate. It should be relentless. Man, will we not have a church that's quiet and subdued, but a church that's passionate to engage the world around us. Why? Because we serve a passionate God. Because we serve a loving God. Because we serve a God that wants to see the world changed. Passion. That's the type of faith I want. That's the type of faith that says, I'll walk on water. I'll do it. It's amazing that maturity most times 
looks like being subdued. Isn't it? I want to be that guy. That's that guy who just really loves Jesus. That's that guy who's a little bit crazy. But I'm okay with that. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about him and his nature and character. Jesus didn't die an ordinary death so that we could live and have ordinary faith. It was extraordinary in nature. So our faith should be extraordinary in nature. Come on, am I talking to anybody this morning? Okay, three things that we need to do in order to avoid suburban faith. This is how we don't, like, don't do suburban faith. Avoid it. And I'm going to have the team come up right now so I don't take too long. They're going to give me the mood music. <laughs> this is the part where you're like, oh, finally he's almost done. Wait, he's still going. <laughs> come on, shot number one for me. Remember, the first thing is this, is learn to make faith decisions daily. Learn to make faith decisions daily. You've got to exercise that faith muscle. Right? Faith. 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 <laughs> You've got to exercise that faith muscle. It only grows when you exercise it. And here's the reality about faith. For many of us, we want to only exercise faith in the big decisions. But what I've come to find out is that the big decisions destroy us because we actually really don't know how to exercise faith in that situation because we haven't spent time exercising it in all the small situations. we got to exercise it in the small situations. The everyday things. I can exercise faith in my marriage, in my relationships, with my kids, in my job. In every single moment of the day, faith actually applies. Even more so because it's about his nature and character. Understanding on the daily that God is for you and not against you. The Bible tells us that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. That is the nature and the character of God. So I exercise faith decisions daily. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go for this. I'm going to believe God. What decision do you need to make today that seems simple but really creates a pathway for greater faith decisions? Number two, every shot, number two. Number two, the second thing that we need to do in order to avoid suburban faith is realize that faith moves mountains, not feelings. Feelings. Realize that faith moves mountains, not feelings. Matthew 17, 20 says this. He said to them, because of your little faith, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Notice that Jesus didn't say, if you have faith, it'll move your feelings about the mountain. Right? We all hate the mountain. We love being at the top of it. How many of you hike in here? Show hands. Okay. A lot of us. I don't hike per se. My wife really enjoys hiking. I don't see the point in it. It's like NASCAR in the wilderness. You go up, you just go around and do the, do the thing. It's, it's so pointless. I like to hike to something, all right? So I can go fishing or do something like that. But there's this, this moment that you kind of get to this place where you hate the hike. 
Like your body's like, oh man, I'm tired. But you know where you're going. You know what's going on. You know what you're trying to get to. And then you get to that place and you're like, oh, this is, a, this is amazing. This is beautiful. And you see everything for, for miles maybe and whatever the hike is. And you get to the top of it and you're like, this is great. And then there's that little thing that goes through your head. I've got to hike back down now. Right? Here goes the journey again. And for some of us, like, we really do like both sides of that. And I, I get that. I'm painting with a broad brush and the illustration has holes. But at least for me, when I hike, I have this one fleeting moment. Dang it, I got to walk down again. And that's what faith is for us. We all love the mountaintop experience. But we just can't stay there. There's other things that we have to do. And we have to realize that we may not feel things in the moment. But God never gave us faith in order to eradicate our feelings. He gave us faith to move mountains. There will be times when you are faced with mountains that you don't feel like dealing with. But in faith, we've got to keep on going. See, the mountain will always go against the mood. Your mountain that you are facing will always go against your mood. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this again. Some of us are facing mountains that have been created because of the divorce that we've just gone through. Because we have a hard time with faith in the nature and character of God we struggle with. Is there more beyond this moment? Is there more beyond this mountain? Some of us are struggling because of the addiction, because of the fear, because of some of the stuff that we talked about this morning. Listen, church, we have to realize that faith moves mountains, not feelings. Not feelings. The third thing is this. We have to allow faith to drive us, drive us toward his will, not our preference. Hello. Some of the greatest acts of faith have been subverted because of preference. You hear that this morning? We all have preferences, don't we? You say potato, I say potato. <laughs> we all have preferences. And preferences aren't inherently bad until they get in the way of God's will for our life. And our preference rears its ugly head and we're like, God, I don't want to do it that way. I want it my way. I want to do it this way. I want it to look like this. I want the relationship to be like this. I only want to be single for this, this long. I want my spouse to do things this way. I want this church to play this type of music. Preference. So many times they get in the way of a move of God in our lives because we're more concerned about our preference than His will. May we not be a people who fights for our preference, but rather a people who fights for his will in our lives. And that's why when Jesus taught, his disciples says, teach us how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. My Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because there's a heaven preference that needs to be gained in earthly places. He never said, pray your preference. Heaven preference in earthly places. Teach us how to pray. Number four, the last one is this. Remember that faith always renders sacrifice. Faith always renders sacrifice. It was Jesus' faith 
in God the Father. That caused him to go to the cross. Why? Because it said, nevertheless, your will be done. Nevertheless, your will be done. So his faith in the nature and character of God the Father enabled Jesus with everything he needed to go to the cross for you and for me. Faith will always render in our lives sacrifice, never selfishness. So I pray this morning, church, that we wouldn't be a church that lives suburban faith out, but that we would be a church that lives dangerous, audacious type of faith. And that we live it out every day making small faith decisions. So when the moments come for big faith decisions, we can seize a hold of everything that God has for us. Come on, would you stand to your feet?